Amen. And as we turn to God's Word, I would invite you uh, to open either in your bulletin or in the copy of God's Word that you have with you to uh, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verse 57 to the end of the chapter. Uh, This sermon uh, was originally prepared and preached um, in December, so that's why it has, it's in one of those passages of Scripture that we think of as that which is appropriate for leading up to Christmas, Um, and there will be some Christmassy themes. I've tried to adapt it so that it's not explicitly Christmas and won't feel three weeks old, Um, but of course it's God's Word, and so we can profit from it at all times of the year, even on January 15th. Um, And because it's God's Word, please listen carefully as I read it, Uh, beginning from Luke 1, verse 57 to the end of the chapter. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Our God, as we turn to your word, bless us as we consider it. Speak to us by your spirit and help us to see Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope you like poetry um, because this uh, this, uh, prophecy from 
Zechariah is poetry, it's Hebrew poetry, and when I read it and thought about it and studied it, it made me think of poetry, and I found this beautiful poem by the 20th century Bengali poet and Nobel laureate, um, he's, he, he's from uh, Bengal, which is in India, so I'm going to try to pronounce his name, I might mess it up, but this I think is how you pronounce his name, Rabindranath Tagore, um, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I practiced. Um, so th this poem is called Light, and it's just this beautiful reflection on what happens when light happens. Light, my light, the world-filling light, the eye-kissing light, the heart-sweetening light. Ah, the light dances, my darling, at the center of my life. The light strikes, my darling, the chords of my love. The sky opens, the wind runs wild, laughter passes over the earth. The butterflies spread their sails on the sea of light. Lilies and jasmines surge up on the crest of the waves of light. The light is shattered into gold on every cloud, my darling, and it scatters gems in profusion. Mirth spreads from leaf to leaf, my darling, and gladness without measure. The heaven's river has drowned its banks, and the flood of joy is abroad. What is poetry? What was that that I just subjected your ears to? You know, poetry, I think it's that genre of literature that we use to communicate with words that which we can't possibly communicate with so few words. That which is really hard to communicate with words, but we feel like we absolutely have to get across somehow. And you know, the author could uh, have communicated the precise meaning of what he was trying to say with paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, but that's not the point of a poem, is it? The point is to take all of the meaning that, you can, that he can grasp at and compress it into a small space, just a few words, uh, to take beauty and glory and get it into something small. And we could say to the ultimate degree, that's what God did when he sent his son, he took the most meaningful, the most beautiful thing, and he made him small. He even made him like us. And that's why the Bible is full of poetry. And as Zechariah prophesies, as he does here in the form of Hebrew poetry, now especially he has so much to say, too much to say. And he says it like this. And he says it so that we can bask in the light of what he says. And if I could even summarize it further down, um, my attempt at a main point this morning is that the grace of God has come, so let's get ready to and do our best to see him. The grace of God has come, so let's see him. Uh, three points this morning, God visits, God loves, and God lights. God visits, God loves, and God lights. First of all, God visits. Uh, now, the, the, main, the main thrust of what we'll be focusing on is the prophecy of Zechariah, but I read the, the first section, which gives the context for it, uh, because it's important to know kind of where it's coming from. And so we're going to spend a, just a couple minutes looking at that, that short narrative from verses 57 to 66, where uh, it, it happens that Instead of what was expected, God actually gets the privilege of naming this child, not his parents. 
Uh, now, very evidently, it was expected by the neighbors that he would be named Zechariah. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers, God remembers, the Lord remembers, after his father's name. We don't know exactly why they expected that. It's actually a bit weird uh, because most of the time in, in the Bible, uh, boys are not named after their fathers, which, which is interesting. It's more common now that that happens. So we don't know why there was this convention, this ex- expectation from the neighbors that he would be named Zechariah. But they did. They certainly did. It was uh, almost assumed that they would. But Zechariah and Elizabeth were not relying on the same convention because they were spoken to earlier in the chapter by the angel, telling them what they should name the child. Not Yahweh remembers, but John. Yahweh is gracious. The Lord has shown mercy. That's the meaning of John. So Elizabeth uh, protests. She says, no, his name is going to be John, not Zechariah. Everyone thinks that's scandalous, a little bit weird. And they say, well, that's easy for you to say, Elizabeth. You, you are able to speak. Your husband can't. So they try to find a way to communicate with Zechariah. And he responds, not by making signs to them, yes or no sort of thing, but he writes down on a tablet, maybe so that there would be no doubt his name is John. And, we're, and everyone thinks this is just strange, beyond belief. But of course, faith often is strange, unconventional looking in the moment, unique, unexpected. And that's what this is. It's a dramatic deepening of Zechariah and Elizabeth's faith, a confirmation also of their faith. And because of their faith, because of this great turning point, you could, you could say, in this text, in their life, something else amazing happens that we've been waiting for. Zechariah speaks He's been silent for nine months, and now he says his first words. And when he speaks, what comes out is this sort of curated, concentrated collection of Old Testament scripture with a focus on the promises of God in the Old Testament that were given for centuries, and now they are about to be fulfilled. This moment that the world has been waiting for is so close, you can almost see it and touch it. And we're going to look at this, uh, not because we can exhaust what all of the Old Testament references, we're going to barely touch the tip of the iceberg, but you've got to get a sense for this. In the first uh, four verses of Zechariah's prophecy, 68 to 71, uh, he tries to capture this pattern of how God has promised to save his people and how he has done it in the past. He says that God visits and he redeems, he visits to redeem. Uh, now maybe you're catching that, that's heavy Exodus language. Right? So there's this moment in Exodus chapter 4 where Moses is called by the Lord to go back to Egypt and and save and rescue and lead out his people. And he goes to the the elders of uh, the the Israelites there as they are in bondage. And he says, get ready, Yahweh, the Lord is coming down to rescue you. Zechariah is saying he's going to do that again. A little bit later on in Zechariah's prophecy, uh, he talks about the horn of salvation, which is not usually the way that we speak. It's a, uh, a saying, a turn of phrase that you don't hear anymore. But what that means, it's usually talking about the power that God has to save, and he usually, he usually works uh, through a king or some kind of leader or representative or judge in the Old Testament to, to display his grace in an awesome and awe-inspiring way, advocating for and rescuing his people from the enemy. 
Zechariah says, you're going to see that happen again real soon. So get ready. He's coming. Another phrase that's used here, God remembers his covenant. Remembers his covenant. This thread that's weaved throughout all of history, through the scriptures. God doesn't act out of nowhere. He says he's going to do something and then he does it, no matter how long it takes him to do it. At the perfect time, he always shows up and saves. So, there's this repetition. He's coming. He's coming. He will save. The ideas of this poem are the things, the words that rhyme with each other. Over and over again, this theme, God is coming. God is saving. God will deliver us. It is happening soon. He will do it. So keep an eye out for him. Now, this is not just a theoretical concept or some abstract thinking that belongs to religion or spirituality, something that is good for religious people because they need it. Maybe they have an extra gene turned on that I don't. And so uh, it's good for them, but not for me. That's not what's being said here. These are objective claims. God either comes down to this world to save or he doesn't. He has either shown up or he hasn't. And I get that it's hard to believe that this one time 2,000 years ago, he showed up and visited a post-menopausal woman and her old husband and gave them a child from natural conception. And then also around the same time, he showed up to give an actual virgin, uh, virgin conception through a supernatural conception. But in the act of saving his people, that's what God did, according to the scriptures, and he either did or he didn't. And that's why faith, if you believe that, that's why you're a little weird, unexpected. And that's also why, even for those of us who have faith in our weaker moments, we have this knack to expect that God did not actually work in that way. This cynicism or maybe just a hesitancy to fully believe. It may even look or seem to us like God has not acted or redeemed in this way. We assume that most of our lives are not after that pattern, but after some other pattern of God who's a bit more distant. And then we send him invitations and emails and texts, and, 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 and we invite him over social to, to come into our life and help us. We, we think we do it in the right way. But maybe we don't see him showing up. He doesn't answer the RSVP conspicuously does not come, and we assume that God must be absent. That maybe he doesn't actually show up, because he doesn't come in the way that we would expect. You know, and, and maybe that's behind the thing that we did three weeks ago, according to our yearly traditions, at Christmas time. You know, Christmas in the Western world, it's, it's strange, isn't it? It's probably one of the only times left where the significant majority of people think seriously and even reverently about Jesus, but they do so sort of in a way that's built up with sentimentality and distraction, ironically building that between us and Christ so that the truth of Christmas is made obscure and not that real. And, and it, we, we almost metaphorize and relativize the whole thing. You know, like Jesus, you know, it, does it really matter if he was actually God or not? Because he probably only metaphorically saves us from our pretend enemies and at best gives us the self-motivation to forgive ourselves of our pretend sins. 
And maybe God incarnate was just all the nice people we met along the way. But, but you see, you don't need that. If you're only looking for pretend salvation, pretend forgiveness, because it's not all that necessary, then you don't need the Jesus story. You know, in 2023, you can probably come up with a better one for that. You don't need Jesus for pretend salvation. You need Jesus for real salvation. Because Jesus helps us as very God of very God who came to this world to rescue us from real enemies and actually to forgive us of our real sins. That's what Jesus does. That's what he came to do. That's what God promises. That's what this is saying. But then we go back to the unanswered invitations. Why doesn't God answer me if this is the case, if he truly came down? Well, I think the question is not why is God absent necessarily. Maybe think of it this way. Why are we not expecting God to come in the way that he has said that he comes? Why didn't we expect him? And I think the answer is painfully simple. It's that we were not expecting him to come in this way. You know that song, that that Christmas song, maybe you heard it in December, maybe multiple times, Mary, Did You Know? Um, And that, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would, and then it goes goes on to explain all the things that Jesus did in his lifetime. And, And some of those things get really specific, and it's almost an unfair question, like how could Mary know the specifics of how Jesus was going to walk on water? But I, I will tell you what Mary did know at this point in time as she was uh, just given a conception at, at, in, in the Christmas story. Mary knew by faith all the things that the angel told her. No matter how unbelievable it was, she believed that God was going to do this amazing work in her and that the Savior would be born. And she did not know, did not comprehend how this was going to work, but she said, Lord, I believe Sign me up. Which is amazing. It's amazing that she did that. 14-year-old girl, probably, something like that. Contrast that with Zechariah. When the angel showed up to him and told him that, uh, that God was going to give him and his wife Elizabeth a son, uh, he's a priest, he's in his late 40s, maybe 50s, maybe even older. We, I don't think we know for sure. He's, but he's steeped in religious tradition. He's full of the knowledge of the scriptures. He's, he's honored in, in uh, verse 6 as a righteous man. So he, he's not this you know, corrupt, evil guy. He, of all people, should have had faith. But when the angel comes to him and tells him what's going to happen, he says, there's no way that that could happen. Don't give me that promise, God. Anything but that, that's not going to happen. Stop fooling me. Zechariah should have known that his baby boy would grow up to be a prophet, but he didn't believe. And I think the reason why he did not believe is often the reason that we have trouble believing God's promises. We don't expect that God could do it or that he will do it or that he will be faithful. So what does God do? Okay, Zechariah, let's confront that disbelief, shall we? You know, uh, when Zechariah goes silent, from that point on, for nine months until the baby is born, it is a disciplinary, from, a disciplinary measure from the Lord, for sure. But it's also an invitation. 
maybe a little bit uh, behind the surface of what it is. It's an, it's an invitation, almost like Zechariah, you've been faithful for so long as a priest. You're a good priest, but in this moment, you are showing fear and anxiety leading to disbelief, maybe coming from disbelief. I need you to take a nine-month sabbatical. I need you to take some time and some focused Bible study. I want you to sit with my promises. Lock yourself in a room with my word. Is it hard to believe that I can give you a son, Zechariah? Well, I'm going to show you what your son is going to be. And I wonder if when Zechariah lost his ability to speak, it almost had the effect that the noise in his head dissipated to a degree so that God's promises were able to fill the empty spaces and change his perception and his perspective and transform him. You know, what if it's not about addressing our invitation envelopes the right way so that they get to God? What if it's about trusting that God actually has already come to us and receiving him in that way? So when's the last time you made room for the promises of God to fill the empty spaces, for his promises to uh, fill the voids in your experience and to believe what he says he will do so that your expectations would be reshaped from a God who's flaky at best to a God who actually comes in your real life to actually help and save and redeem you. That's what we celebrated three weeks ago. Are you living in that light now? Our second point this morning is God loves. So God visits and God loves. And I want to zoom in on something here. We could take uh, a number of different directions and look at a number of different themes from these uh, verses, but I want to look at least at at one of the central ones, coming from right of the, the middle of this prophecy in verse 72. We read that God comes to show the mercy promised from long ago to the fathers and mothers of the Hebrew faith. God comes to show mercy. Remember that John's name means God has shown mercy. God comes to show mercy. Now what does that mean? Exactly what mercy was promised long ago? It's the same mercy that God promises throughout the Old Testament. Uh, He visits Adam and Eve in the garden right after they sinned and uh, God, God tells them, you, you just broke my law. You chose death. You believed the deceiver. You have hated me, but I will send a deliverer for you. And I will watch over and protect you until that comes. And then generations later, he visits and shows up to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and says, you have no idea who I am, but I will be faithful to you. Though you are ignorant of my grace, I will show you how amazing It is. And one day, your descendant will save the world. And centuries later, he visits David. You're a shepherd boy, a nobody, forgotten in your own family, David. But I will make you a king. And you will rule over my people and make them prosperous. You will be a good king, a righteous king, and and will be remembered for generations until one of your descendants is going to be the king of the world. And then time and time again, he visits 
Israel, my people, you continue to disobey me. You have turned your backs on me. Even now you don't listen to me. You hate me. But I still love you. And I will save you. And so he did. And so there's this powerful theme present in every promise of God's love. God's love. How do we think of that? Well, a biblical counselor, David Powlison, wrote this little booklet on God's love. And there's a concept that, I, that is, is, is amazing and I think captures this well. He explains that God's love is not just unconditional, right? We usually think of unconditional love being the highest form of love, that we love other people, um, not based on the, what they deserve. But he says that God's love is actually better than that. It's not enough to say unconditional. He says that God's love is contra-conditional. Let me read a quote. God has blessed me because his son fulfilled conditions I could never achieve. Contrary to what I deserve, he loves me. And now I can begin to change, not because I can earn his love, but because I've already received it. You see, this, for Zechariah, his neighbors, uh, for us, this is Jesus lying in a manger, cradled by the virgin, who grows up to preach the gospel and die for sin and rise to glory. This is who Jesus is. This is the message of, of Jesus' life. This is the gospel. This is the light that you need to see Contrary to what I deserve and what you deserve, God loves you. Now, have you ever heard that before? Have, have, have you actually heard that before? Because it's impossible to hear that statement and really hear it and understand it without it changing you. That statement cannot go in one ear and out the other. It, it has to stick with you, even eat at you. It, 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 if it gets to you, it might even anger you. Kind of like, how dare you, David Powelson, suggest that I don't deserve the love of God? Right? But if, if that's you, what if for all the ways that you are a good person that you may have deserved love from those that you love and that you are or feel worthy of love, and, and certainly created in God's image as a human being, you are worthy of, of love and honor. But what about all the ways in which you're still incomplete and inconsistent, in fact, immoral, falling below your own standard of goodness? And, and do I really need to convince you of that? You know, all of us, we have moments of clarity and realization where we see that we are our own worst enemy. And the Bible calls that sin, of course. And, you know, we, we might even hate ourselves for those times, for those things that we do, habits that are harmful to us and to others. You know, God sees that. And because he's God, his standard is infinitely higher than ours. But he doesn't hate you. In Christ, he loves you. In those areas where we hate ourselves, God in Christ loves us. He loves us and he gave us his son. 
That's the gospel. The light has come. <laughs> and we celebrated it three weeks ago. Uh, and hopefully we felt the love of God at that point. Or do we still feel it? Do we still know it? Do we still live in it? This amazing thing that has come into the world and changed everything. God loves. Finally, God lights. God visits, God loves, and God lights. Uh, you know, everything that uh, Zechariah says in, in his, his prophecy up until verse 76 um, really could have been said about other points in Israel's history before. They were just reminders of God's covenant promises uh, throughout uh, all of history. But then unmistakably, there's this turn in the last four verses uh, where God is about to do something new. And this eight-day-old baby boy, named after God's grace, is going to have a role in this massive turning point in all of history. Zechariah prophesies that John is going to grow up to be the last and greatest prophet that the world has ever seen. And, and this is actually pretty clear. There's a reference to um, Malachi, who's um, an Old Testament prophet, one of the, the last ones in, in our English Bible. Uh, there's a reference in verse 76 and 77. And, and it recalls what Malachi said centuries before about the coming Messiah and the appearing of the Lord in human history and special attention in both Malachi and, and certainly here is given to a messenger, a unique prophet that is going to show up right before, virtually as the Messiah is appearing, to announce his coming and to prepare the way for him. Christ is here. Are you ready? Christ is here. He's just around the corner. Are you ready to see him? Yeah, and, and John gets to be that guy. The one who's going to turn on the lights for Jesus to walk in. And uh, certainly, if you uh, fast forward 30 years and, you know, just a couple pages in, in, in Luke and in most of the other Gospels where we read about John the Baptist, um, the, the, the two main points of every sermon he ever preached was, the Messiah is coming, so repent of your sins. The Messiah is coming, repent of your sins. He is announcing that Jesus is coming and so prepare for him to be here. So, how does John the Baptist's sermons hit your ear? Messiah is coming, so repent. You know, Jesus is this amazing gift of God's grace, and repentance is when you receive that gift by faith, and then believing that he has come you, you turn from your sin and you follow him. Believing that contrary to the sin by which I've deserved the opposite of a Messiah, that I can actually live in God's strength according to his love, in his righteousness, in his peace, trusting in him. And light is a perfect metaphor for this. The light of repentance and faith is such a fitting response for the light that Christ brings into the world. It really is like someone turned a light on in your soul and you're able to see by it, not just yourself more clearly, but everything more clearly. And now, as the, as the calendar has turned a couple weeks ago and we're in 2023, reflecting on the last year, looking out over the new year, do you see by that 
light. As, as Zechariah speaks over John, he speaks not just for himself, but he speaks for us too. You see, this is probably one of the biggest things that he realizes in his sabbatical, that he's, he's not just receiving grace for his family. It's not just him and Elizabeth getting something great from God, but he's seeing through the promises of God that are about to be fulfilled all of the ways that the world is about to be blessed through John. And so we also can rejoice with them. Thankful that they've received this child. Thankful for this message. The clarity of it. Jesus is here. So live your life as if he came. We're, we're, we're three weeks past Christmas. Are, are you still rejoicing? Are you still transformed? Are you still changed? Are you still walking in the light? Is it daytime in your soul? Or is it still nighttime? And here, here's how you know. It, it's, it's simple stuff. Repentance and faith. I think of faith as seeing as if the sun cresting the horizon, the light of Christ coming to shine, and repentance is that life lived in the light, not running to hide behind a tree as if that can do any good in the light of day, but allowing the light to shine and change you and reveal and rescue. Think of what a sunrise does, uh, beginning with the darkness, which is your sin and my sin. But then into that darkness comes the first glimmers of light and color. Faintly on the horizon, you can see the line of the horizon. You can see that something is changing over there. And you begin to notice by the power of the Spirit, as the light gets brighter and brighter, the colors get more majestic. You start to see things around you. Maybe through God's promises, things start to become more clearly and clear. And then the sun comes over the horizon, over the edge of the earth, and its light arrives and wraps everything in a new kind of life. And you finally see him. And you can follow him. So how are you going to respond? If that truly has happened in Christ, how are you going to respond? Are, are there some trees that you're running to hide behind still? Maybe it's a, a sinful pattern or some, uh, so, some kind of thing forming darkness that, that, that you don't want God to see? As if he wouldn't accept you? As if the sun would stop coming up and come down again if God saw it? You don't want to ruin that? You're too ashamed to bring that area of your life into the light? And so maybe you protect it. You think that you can deal with it on your own, that you can, you, you can fix yourself, possibly. That's actually a form of slavery to sin, and that's not going to do any good. And, and, and we all struggle with those kinds of things, but Christ comes again and again. He visits and redeems and says, I'm here. I've come to deal with that. Exactly that area of your life that thing that you think separates you from me, I've come to separate that from you. So allow my light to shine and then turn and walk and follow me. You know, what if Christ is actually everything that, that has ever been promised, but only better? The light of living in the day is better than the promise of the day coming. And that's what it is like to live in the light of Christ. And what, what would it look like for you 
to take those things that you're hiding and protecting, those sins, and ask Christ, ask your Father, God in Christ, to forgive you and change you and redirect you. Of course, I don't know what those things are, and so I can't imagine the weight of what I've just asked you to do. I don't live with your darkness, but I do live with mine, and I can tell you that whenever I've done that with my darkness, God always visits, he always redeems, he's always faithful. I promise you that Jesus is up to the task of our salvation, and he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Uh, I, I want to end in some, somewhat of an unconventional way this morning. Who is this child? The neighbors say. His name and role remain obscure. Zechariah, he is still unable to speak. A note confirms the rumor. Elizabeth's right. John, the name. God has been gracious, what they hear. Never was there a more fitting name for a child, for a moment, for a year. Zechariah might imagine, standing on a hill, dark, cold, chill, waiting, anticipating, content, filling hope, as he discerns God's will. And as if seeing morning's first light, the sunrise now is on the way, of lasting beauty, justice, goodness, and peace, what gift he has something to say. So the old man speaks, yet hope springs new, gray-haired, squinting, a verge of dawn. The infant he holds is his own newborn son. God has shown mercy. His name is John. The child sleeps, sublime, at peace. He will announce the light. He'll stand like father as light gently crests the horizon, time-fulfilled kingdom at hand. The Messiah is very close. Like the warm rays of a new sun, he will dispel darkness, sin, guilt, and shame, and John will usher this Holy One. Only a few years now for him, though for us all is now past. But Jesus, resurrected light, always living, his morning will ever last. The night is over. Life and joy come to him. The Son of God is in sight. And with Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John, we stand heralds of God's light. Let's pray. Our God, you have given us a, uh, the light of day, which is uh, far better than we could have ever imagined, far better than any promise. Uh, and in, in, the, in your infinite wisdom, you have mapped out the history of this world as a grand story with darkness, including promises leading to the light coming over the horizon, and Jesus showing us who you are. And, and as we sit here this morning, still dealing with the darkness and sin of the world, yet also living in your light, we pray that you would help us and cause us to follow you, uh, to, to, to chase after you if that's what it takes, knowing that you have uh, been faithful to come to us first. I thank you that you are gracious, that you are kind, and that you will be patient with us for as long as it takes for, the, for all of us who belong to you to, to come to you by faith and to love you and trust you. So would you do that this morning 
Um, show us the way and uh, feed our souls by your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.